Welcome. You're listening to sermons and talks from Providence Church in Brisbane. We believe that God speaks to us through His Word, the Bible. So we pray that as you listen, you'll be encouraged and challenged to love Jesus and live for Him. For more information about Providence Church, please visit our website, www.providencechurch.com. 1 Samuel chapter 4, verses 1 to 11, and 1 Samuel chapter 5, which can be found on page 187 to 188 in the church Bible. And Samuel's word came to all Israel. Now the Israelites went out to fight against the Philistines. The Israelites camped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines at Aphek. The Philistines deployed their forces to meet Israel, and as the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 of them on the battlefield. When the soldiers returned to camp, the elders of Israel asked, Why did the Lord bring defeat on us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Lord's Covenant from Shiloh, so that he may go with us and save us from the hand of our enemies. So the people sent men to Shiloh, and they brought back the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim. And Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. When the Ark of the Lord's Covenant came into the camp, all Israel raised such a great shout that the ground shook. Hearing the uproar, the Philistines asked, what's all this shouting in the Hebrew camp? When they learned that the Ark of the Lord had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid. A God has come into the camp, they said. Oh no, nothing like this has happened before. We're doomed. Who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? They are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the wilderness. Be strong, Philistines. Be men or you'll be subject to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought and the Israelites were defeated and every man fled to his tent. The slaughter was very great. Israel lost 30,000 foot soldiers. The ark of the God was captured and Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, died. I'm now going to read from 1 Samuel chapter 5. After the Philistines had captured the ark of God, They took it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then they carried the ark into Dagon's temple and set it beside Dagon. When the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, there was Dagon fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. They took Dagon and put him back to his place. But the following morning when they rose, there was Dagon fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. His head and hands had been broken off and were lying on the threshold. Only his body remained. That is why to this day, neither the priests of Dagon nor any others who entered Dagon's temple, Ashdod, step on the threshold. The Lord's hand was very heavy on the people of Ashdod and its vicinity. He brought devastation on them and afflicted them with tumors. When the people of Ashdod saw what was happening, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not stay here with us because his hand is heavy on us and on Dagon, our God. So they called together all the rulers of the Philistines and asked, 
what shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, have the ark of the God of Israel moved to Gath. So they moved the ark of the God of Israel. But after they had moved it, the Lord's hand was against that city, throwing it into a great panic. He afflicted the people of the city, both young and old, with an outbreak of tumors. So they sent the ark of the God to Ekron. As the ark of God was entering Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, They have brought the ark of the God of Israel around to us to kill us and our people. So they called together all the rulers of the Philistines and said, Send the ark of the God of Israel away. Let it go back to its own place, or it will kill us and our people. For, God, for death has filled the city with panic. God's hand was very heavy on it. Those who did not die were afflicted with tumors, and the outcry of the city went to heaven. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you're a God who uh, does speak, that your word is living, and that we can hear from it, and we can live by it. We're, we're, we're so blessed, Lord, to uh, have access to you, that we can have a God who we can have a relationship with, uh, who calls us to live uh, for him and to know his glory, and when we can live that out in our lives. I do pray that as we hear from 1 Samuel, this ancient text, you'll remind us of your goodness and your love uh, and your, your glory as our king, and um, that we'll consider how we'll be convicted and how we can live by it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, I learned a new word this week. And this new word was frigatriskaidekaphobia. Who's heard of this word before? Has anyone heard of this word? One person, okay? This word means you have a fear of Friday the 13th. Uh, I don't know if you have a fear of Friday the 13th, but if you do, you're a frigatriskaidekaphobic. Don't make me say that again, all right? It somehow became known, though, over, since the 1800s that uh, Friday the 13th had bad luck. It was, it was an unlucky day. And so when people, uh, go, uh, when people go through bad luck they, on that day, they just associate, well, Friday and 13th, it must be a bad day. So from then on, from the 1800s sometimes, that's when this whole thing happened, Friday the 13th. Now, this is quite interesting. I was online, and I don't, know, I don't know how reliable Google is. It's not that reliable. But the Stress Management Center and Phobia Institute in North Carolina. Sounds like it's made up. The Stress Management Center and Phobia Institute in North Carolina says about 17 million people in America have a fear of Friday the 13th. Now, if you have a fear of Friday the 13th here, I'm not judging. Or I'm not judging. People have different fears. I get it. We all have different fears. But it is just a little superstitious, isn't it? Like, really, is bad luck going to happen to everybody in the whole world on that day? Surely not. I mean, surely, if you happen to break a mirror, are you really going to have bad luck for the next seven years, every day for the next seven years? Is, is knocking on wood really going to prevent that bad thing happening that you just said because you knocked on wood? Uh, I'm not surprised. Like, I'm not surprised though, if there are people in this room who who have their own superstitions. I mean, my mom used to always say, "Knock on wood." I'm like, "Why?" And we do it though, don't we? Because we want to have a sense of control in our lives. We want to have a sense of control over our luck, right? If you can avoid bad luck, then why not just knock on some wood? It's not, you know, it's not gonna, it's not hard. Just do it. Now, I hope many of our members here, Providence, aren't aren't putting their faith in superstitions or luck. Our church is called 
providence, which means God governs, controls all things. Uh, so let's hope we're not putting our faith in that. But we do, in a sense, sometimes bring in these superstitions into our Christian life, don't we? I mean, let me give you some examples. The Christian who believes wearing a cross around their neck holds some sort of power or protection. Christians who put up a cross in their house, hoping that their house will have some sort of protective barrier over it, emanating some sort of power, you know, holy power because there's a cross hanging up on the wall and they're protected. Uh, Many years ago as a teenager, Heidi was telling me that she went to youth group and uh, there was a guy in her youth group who told her that when exams came around, exam week, he'd listen to Christian music. And listening to Christian music would, would make him feel like God's going to bless him in his exams. I don't know about you, but do you do anything like that? Like random acts of kindness to a stranger and hoping that it's going to earn you some brownie points with God this week? But isn't all those things just really a Christian veneer? A Christian veneer to thinking that we are going to get good luck or some sort of karma? Don't we come to God with that sort of superstitious attitude at times? I want to ask us today, how do you treat God? How do you approach Him? How do you see Him and His power? Do we see Him for who He truly is, or are we trying to control our luck? Are we trying to manipulate Him for our own gain? While Christians today might be led astray by superstitions, this is an issue, actually, that's been around for for centuries in humanity, across religions, even here 3,000 years ago, right, in our Bibles. Same issue as on in, in terms of how they approached God, the people of Israel in the Old Testament, how they approached God. It's happening right here with them. But before we get to that, let's give it. Let's let me give you some context. Last week we heard from Hannah. Uh, she was uh, Samuel's mom. Uh, she was barren. She gave birth to Samuel after praying to God. She had a song about how great this God is. He's a rule that's enthroned in heaven, sovereign, powerful, will provide for his people. And he provided a son for Hannah, uh, named Samuel. Now Samuel, uh, as Tim mentioned earlier, he's a prophet to God's people and God's people in the Old Testament. And as a prophet, he talks to God and hears from God and brings the word of God to the people. Now, as chapter four starts off, we hear about that, don't we? Samuel's word goes out to Israel. But for the next three chapters until chapter seven, we don't hear from Samuel again. We don't. His name doesn't pop up. That's an issue. That's an issue. We'll find out why. Chapter 4, verse 1. Let's read it together. I'll read it. Now the Israelites went out to fight against the Philistines. The Israelites camped at Ebenezer and Philistines at Aphek. The Philistines deployed their forces to meet Israel. And as the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 of them on the battlefield. Now, some quick information, right, on the Philistines. In history, they showed up around 1200 BC, so a couple of hundred years before this is happening. And Egyptian sources actually tell us that they were known as sea people. So they're coming in from the west, right, into Israel. They settle on the western coast of Israel. They want to extend their, tori- to extend their territory up and pushing into the, you know, into the, to the east, up to the hills, right, of Israel. What we know about them, they're strong, they're strategic, they were a military threat to Israel. Now, there's no reasoning here for why Israel did what they did, right? All of a sudden, Israel goes up to fight. God didn't tell them to go fight against them. Samuel wasn't consulted at all. But today, today seems like a good day to go to war, right? So here we are. And it seems like it doesn't take long for the Philistines to defeat them all. 4,000 of them are killed on that day. That's a lot of people, 4,000. Now you're scratching your head. What happened? How did this happen? Uh, it's a question we all, we all ask, don't we? When we go out into battle, we're not going, like, when we all go out into a game of soccer or when you participate in a, in a debate, you play a game of chess, right? Afterwards, 
when you lose, say, say you, if you lost miserably, you'd ask, what happened, right? How did they defeat me? Did I not have strategy? Did we not have enough people out on the battlefield? You want to debrief, debrief your moves, right, and your actions with your team and consider how you can come back stronger and better next time. I mean, it'd be foolish not to debrief what happened. So Israel, they come back from the battlefield after losing 4,000. They're in the locker room. They're having a chat. The elders are having a chat, asking this legitimate question. When the soldiers returned to camp, verse 3, the elders of Israel asked, why did the Lord bring defeat on us today before the Philistines? That's an interesting question. They, they, they've got something right here, though. I, I, I think we'd all be asking the, a different question. Why did the Philistines beat us today? No, why did the Lord bring defeat on us? Israel believe in a God who controls everything, a God of providence who sovereignly governs the universe. God is responsible for their defeat. And so they, they come up with an answer. They're, they're, well, an assumption. Maybe it's because they didn't have the ark of God with them in battle. I mean, that's worked for them in the past when the ark of God is brought out to them, they usually win. So if we bring it out again, maybe... Maybe we can't lose, right? So in verse 3, let us bring the ark of the Lord's covenant from Shiloh so that he may go with us and save us from the hand of our enemies. What is the ark of the covenant? It, it's this sacred gold-covered box like a chest ca- uh, carried by poles designed with cherubim, so these a- winged a- angelic creatures designed on top. Uh, it's meant to be like a throne, like a, a footstool, like a throne for God. And inside the box was the stone tablets, the Ten Commandments, as we might know it in the Bible. Uh, they're inside the box, so that's why it's called the Ark of the Covenant, right? The covenant is God's promises to His people and by which they live. Now, they're acting on past events because in the past they did go to battle and they brought the Ark with them and they had victory in the past. It's in some of the Old Testament books. So they're thinking, if we just bring the Ark again, we'll win. We'll have victory. You see what's going on, right? They treated this ark like a, like a secret weapon. The, 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 well, the infinity gauntlet from Avengers, the Elder Wand from Harry Potter, the Death Star from Star Wars. If they just bring this out, kaboom, right? Everything. They'll win. Uh, it reminds me of actually the movie, I don't know if many of you guys were born in the 80s and 90s, but the movie, <laughs> I can't believe I have to say that. You guys are born after the 90s. Uh, this movie... Indiana Jones, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Who, who's watched this before? Okay, so that's only a quarter of the room, which is really sad for me. You have, like, this one, The Last Crusade, Temple of Doom, the top three Indiana Jones movies. All right, if you're going to watch any Indiana uh, indie movies, they're the ones. Um, in the Lost Ark, all right, Raiders of the Lost Ark, this film. Literally, it's about bad guys, the Nazis, searching for the Lost Ark of God, this Ark that we're reading about. And in the movie, the Nazis believe that it will make their army invincible. That's what they believe. It's in the movie. And so Indiana Jones, who's this adventurous archaeologist, he goes on a mission to try and find it before they do and save the world. Right? That's what Indy does. Now, that's, that's a fictional movie. But that's what Israel's doing 3,000 years ago. Right? They had the same superstitious... Well, maybe Indy took it from the Bible, but they had the same superstitious belief in the legendary Ark. If Israel bring the Ark into ba- battle, they'll practically be invincible because God will be out there fighting with them you see what they're doing they're putting their faith in an object rather than God himself where is God in all this they didn't consult him they didn't cry out to him they didn't even ask him to come out with them just bring the ark we'll win you know the underlying assumption here is that if they could if 
the, the, well, the assumption is they can manipulate God for themselves. The formula, A plus B equals C, foolproof plan. That's his throne. That's where he resides, on the ark. And if Israel bring the ark if they, out there, they'll win. If they fail with the ark out there, well, how does that make God look? God will be humiliated. His reputation will be shot. It'll bring shame to his name. His honor is at stake. Surely they can't lose if the ark is out there in battle. That sounds so wrong, doesn't it? Oh, it sounds manipulative. If we lose, God, you're going to look bad. Surely you don't want to look bad in front of the enemy, right? The world's watching. You better come through. Oh, but isn't that type of manipulation so common in our humanity? Teenagers, right? I love teenagers. I was one once. And we do it to our parents, don't we? We clean up our rooms, we cook a nice dinner, and then we say, oh, hey, can I get permission to go to that party? And if the parents say no, oh, the teenager throws a tantrum. You're so ungrateful, you're so unfair. Look at how much good stuff I did. And the parents are like, I didn't ask you to do that. But see that manipulation? You know, you, we want to spin it around, make them look bad. We do that in relationships, in friendships, married couples. You treat the other person really well, you smother them with love. And when they say no or disagree with something, we blame them like they're the bad guy. Like we're owed something. When in fact, we were just manipulating. Israel want God to come through. And by bringing this ark of God, they, they treat it like a lucky charm, hoping they'll have control of the outcome with the expectation that God will deliver them. Let me summarize what happens next. They go into battle. They battle it out. It's an absolute massacre. Verse 10 says the slaughter was very great. Israel, they didn't lose 4,000. They lost 30,000 foot soldiers. Not only that, the ark of God was captured, and we hear the two corrupt sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, uh, they die as well. Now, God squashes their superstitious attitudes, doesn't he? He passes judgment upon his corrupt people. He won't be controlled or manipulated. In fact, God wants Israel to know they can't control him, so God lets the ark get captured. The ark of God goes into enemy territory. It's interesting, isn't it? There's like, like a huge adventure going on in front of us. From Israel's point of view, God has been taken away, though. The glory of God has departed Israel. But when we keep reading, we discover that God himself chooses to leave, to show his power. He will desert Israel and allow the ark to be put in the hands of the Philistines to show Israel and the enemy his power can't be manipulated. Let's go to chapter 5. Come with me there. Have your Bibles open so you can know where I'm, what I'm looking at. Come with me, uh, verse 1 to 5. We read about how they bring the ark of God to Ashdod. It's one of the Philistine cities. It's put in the temple of Dagon, their God, right? Dagon, a statue, their God. They put this chest next to Dagon. In verse 3, we reread, the next day they wake up, they find Dagon fallen face down in front of the ark of the Lord. Now, you can picture that in your head, right? Face down, right? So, uh, this statue, he's face down um, in front of a box. There is no army. There are no soldiers. There's nobody in the room. But they find this statue, literally in a like, prostrate, in a prostrate position, as if bowing before this ark of God. But hey, maybe, maybe this is just a one-off, right? So they took Dagon and put him back up, stood him back up. They go back to sleep. It's like mafia. They go back to sleep. The next morning comes around, and what happens? Well. Humpty Dumpty sat on the wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. And Dagon has fallen down again. How embarrassing. But this time, not only is Dagon face downward, his hands and his head have been cut off. Now picture that in your mind for a second. 
It's almost like a horror movie. You walk into the room, the air is thick, the hair on your neck stands up, the statue of your God has fallen down, severed heads, severed head and hands. There's no weapon, there's no tool, there's no evidence of a break-in. No one else in the room. Nothing except this eerie golden box that's just sitting over there in front of the fallen statue. Are you getting goosebumps? I am. See, the Philistines think they, they've got Israel's God on a leash. But God quickly shows his power over their powerless God, Dagon. I mean, Dagon's just a statue, isn't he? If God hasn't proved his power enough, that he starts bringing disaster upon the Philistines. They pass the ark from town to town like it's a hot potato, like a grenade going back to go off. Ashdod to Gath to Ekron, wherever the ark goes. God brings disaster upon the enemy. Let me read chapter 5, verse 9. After they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a very great panic, and he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. Later on, we read it was mice that infested the city, right? So later in later chapters, you'll read that's mice that were infesting. They're causing tumors, right? So you can think of some plague. Philistines, they gather. Verse 11, they said, Send away the ark of the God of Israel. Let it return to its own place, that it may not, that it may not kill us or our people. There was this deathly panic throughout the whole city. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. The men who did not die were struck with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. God's supremacy is independent of his people. He doesn't need to be protected or sustained or maintained by his people as if he's reliant on them to function. He will go out and fight the enemy with or without us to show us who he truly is, that he's in control, that he's sovereign. Now, while Israel, that's, that's what's happening. While Israel is going to ask for a human king later on in, in further chapters to rule over them, hasn't God here shown that he alone is sufficient? That he is the king that rules. That he can defeat the enemies, the, the Philistines, without an army. He can defeat them without a human king. He's the one on the throne. And isn't that why the author keeps emphasizing to us, through these passages, through at least chapter 5, the heavy hand of God? Did you read that? Did you read how that kept coming out? Chapter 5, verse 6, the Lord's hand was heavy on the people of Ashdod. Verse 7, they cried out that the God's hand was heavy on them and Dagon. Verse 9, the Lord's hand was against the city of Ekron. Verse 11, death had filled the city with panic. God's hand was heavy on it. Contrast that to the, to the Philistine God, Dagon. He's got no hands. They were cut off. The Philistines, they think they've won the battle. But their god Dagon needed their help to be lifted up with their hands off the ground. He's a powerless god. You see, God is, is, is really what we read in chapter 2 last week in Hannah's song. He's a god of reversal. He works in ways that are so uh, counterculture, unexpected. Yeah, I, I think I've got this on the screen, chapter 2, verse 9. Uh, he says, it is not by this is Hannah singing, it's not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be broken. The Most High will thunder from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. God's hand is active, sovereign over the enemy. He will accomplish his purposes with, with or without his people, needing to even raise their hands. He doesn't need an army of soldiers. He'll allow himself to be captured. He won't care if people might think he's weak, powerless. He'll turn the tables. And in time, he'll reveal his power on his own, single-handedly. He'll defeat the enemy and bring victory for his people. And isn't that precisely how God flexes his power in Jesus? Jesus goes to the cross. 
And in a moment of weakness and failure and defeat, through a bloody death with nails through hands and feet, it looks like the enemy has won. But isn't this precisely how God works? Even 3,000 years ago, even when he allows the ark to be captured and brought into enemy territory, God allows his son to be captured and crucified. And while it looks like Jesus was defeated, God reveals his untamable power and single-handedly defeats sin and death, our greatest enemy. We didn't play a part in that. We didn't have to manipulate the circumstances so that God will act for us. He did that on his own accord. In fact, it was when we were dead in our sin, when we were helpless, that God acted. If you go to Colossians chapter 2, I've got this on the screen as well, uh, of our Bibles, verse 13, it says, When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. Having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us, he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross, verse 15, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over, triumphing over them by the cross. Right? There's a picture there of battle and victory. Jesus has defeated the greatest enemy. Sin and death, he did that without our help. Here's the thing, though. We look at our life, and our enemies look like look like our anxieties and our stress and our job situation and our exams and our relationship problems and our families and the hurt and the pain we feel in our lives that are just so overwhelming. Enemies that we want victory over in our lives. And what do we do? We, we find these lucky charms, hoping that they'll help us. I don't know about you, but do you have like a, a special pen that you use when you write exams? It's like that lucky pen that's come through for you before. Do you have maybe, I don't know, Maybe lucky underwear, you're right, you, you know, it's full of holes, but that's okay, because you really want that job, you really want to do well in that job presentation, so you wear your lucky underwear, you're going to ace it if you wear those undies. But isn't that the same with our faith? We act as if God is our lucky charm that we can manipulate, we can control like a magic formula. If I just kneel next to my bed with my hands clasped together like this, God will hear my prayer even more. It'll be more powerful than if I just lie on my bed like a potato and pray, right? That's not as powerful. Like it, really? Your potato prayers aren't powerful? Uh, hear me out. I believe the posture of our prayer matters. Kneeling, yeah, it helps people. I think kneeling helps us have a posture of humility and focus. Don't get me wrong. It's helpful. But is it more powerful? You could wake up at dawn and do dawn prayers. That's great. But does it mean that God's going to listen to you more intently as if your prayers are louder than others because you woke up at dawn? Good things to do, don't get me wrong. My prayers are powerless in the mornings before I have a coffee. I'll be honest with you. Before 7 a.m., they're zombie prayers. They're not, they're not powerful at all. What starts as a, as a good suggestion, though, good suggestion, kneeling, yeah, sure, dawn prayers, it becomes a superstition so easily, doesn't it, over time? You can stack chairs at church. You can wash dishes. You can clean the toilets at church. Surely God will come through for you because you've done so much for Him and He sees all your hard work. But do you see what we're doing when we do that? We're just falling into that trap of saying, hey, if I try really hard, God will do what I say. I can manipulate God. I can control Him to do my bidding. There's a problem there, isn't there? When we think our actions can lead to His power. And don't hear me wrong. Those are all good things to do. Wear a cross if you'd like it, if you'd like, as a reminder of your faith. 
Get on your knees. Wake up early. That, that's the best way for you to pray. I encourage that. Serve your church through tasks that no one else will do. Do it because you're not trying to manipulate God, because, but because you love God and you want to love the people around you. Do it because God is on the throne. Do it because He's sovereign and He's worthy of our worship. See, God is so much bigger than an ark. So much bigger than an ark that they think have power. We, we can't put God into a box. But we can trust Him. We can trust His sovereign power. And we can trust that He's in control and has gone before us to defeat our greatest enemy. Yeah, life might have real struggles for many of us. We struggle with unemployment, finances, health, broken relationships. Yet in those moments, we can still hold on to hope, can't we? The hope and the power that Jesus will one day make all things good. Like Paul the Apostle in Corinthians, we can echo him. God's grace is sufficient even in weakness. We look forward and upward to the God who gave us the greatest victory of all, life over death. Sin has been conquered. God in history has acted to meet our greatest need. So let me, let me help you consider what that looks like, to trust Him. If, if He's at the center of our worship and not us, it doesn't, look like, doesn't it look like obedience, following Him in obedience? This is what I've observed, right, that's happened in culture. God being holy has been reduced to God being friendly. We call Him the big man upstairs rather than my heavenly Father. We treat Him like a co-pilot functionally in life, right? Rather than our King. So when He calls us to take up our cross in obedience, we say, well, my idea of God is He wouldn't ask me to do that. He doesn't want me to suffer for the sake of the gospel, surely. He doesn't want me to suffer. Serve church, oh, serving church, that clashes with what I want to do in my time. It sounds like an inconvenience. Surely God doesn't want me to be inconvenienced, right? Or the God I believe in doesn't want me to be unhappy. Surely I can live this way, even if the Bible tells me otherwise. He's all about being free, right? To live our lives. He's forgiving. He's loving. Do you see what we're doing there? The kind of God, this version of God that we've conjured up? Well, that's not the Christian God. That's not the God of the Bible. That's not the God who is king. The kind of God, that kind of God is a God who serves us and our wants. A God we've tamed to suit our situation. A God we put in a box. A God that needs to be lifted up and put back standing. A version of God that's sure about love, but not about holiness. A version of God that's sure about forgiveness, but not about repentance. That wants joy for you, but doesn't care about your obedience. Is that the type of God you've got in mind? If it is, frankly, I don't think we believe in the same God. Because that sounds more like a headless and handless God who has no real power or authority. We have to ask if he's truly king in, the, in our lives. If he is truly king, does he have authority over your life? Will you question and challenge your heart? The actions that might be more me-centered than God-centered. When we approach God, is it driven by a humble delight in him? Or is it driven by desires that, and to have our needs met? for our own gain. Is, is he worthy of worship as the one who rules us or is he simply a tool that's useful to get what we want? You know, honestly, I think this is the last thing I want to say. Our prayers are really revealing of our hearts, aren't they? Every time you share with others what you'd like them to pray for, isn't it often asking God to make our lives more comfortable? Help me to perform well in my job to get that promotion. Help me to buy that house. Help me with my uni assignment. God, help me to win in life. 
But what if we were to pray to God to be faithful, to give us trust in Him and obedience, to give us peace even in the storms of life? What if you were to pray to God uh, to ask Him to help you serve Him and submit to Him even when your life feels stressful and busy? Father, help me to think of others still, even if it might inconvenience me or be a sacrifice of my time. Isn't that what obedience looks like? When God is on the throne, not you or I. And not driven by guilt, not driven by duty, some sort of slavish workspace obedience, not that. But driven by a joy and acknowledgement that He is the King who in grace laid down His life for us so that we could have the final victory in life. You see, when you get to chapter 7 of 1 Samuel, the, three chapters later, the ark gets returned and the people come to their senses and Samuel shows up in chapter 7. They ask Samuel to cry out to God for them, make sacrifices. They turn to God in faith and repentance and obedience. God hears their prayers. They go into battle again and God grants them victory. And God didn't need Israel and He doesn't need us, but He in love through a relationship calls us to trust and depend on Him. Uh, I grew up, right, with a lot of superstitions, and my parents passed on a lot to me. Uh, And although I'm I'm Australian, I do have a Chinese background, uh, and being Chinese, having a Chinese background meant um, I was raised being told that four is a really unlucky number. The word four sounds a lot like death in Chinese. Right? So, for example, don't get a car with a license plate that has a 4 in it. It's bad luck. You don't want to drive a car that has a 4 in the license plate. So, when I bought my first car and I had to get the register plate number changed from New South Wales to Queensland, guess what number was on it? The number 4. Now, I remember I took it and I, 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 I shuddered. Like, I hesitated. I took it, and it took so much in me to say, this is just a superstition. It's stupid superstition. I don't believe in this stuff. So much inside of me wanted to ask them to change it, but I took it and I got on with my life. And just like the way I approach God, isn't it so easy for us to let the culture around us shape how I approach Him? If I do this thing, then I will receive good luck. If I do this as a Christian, then I will get God to do things for me. Isn't that how we function? I think the culture tells us that we can fit God neatly into a box and access Him when we want. He'll come through with us if we just have the right formula. But friends, we can't expect God to show up just like a lucky charm when we need Him, especially if we don't have a relationship with Him. Just like this battle, God may allow His people to lose, fail, be defeated, then allow us to carry on a false relationship with Him. Superstition, lucky charms have no place in our worship have no place in our faith. Let's put God on the throne over our lives, where He belongs, trusting Him, submitting to Him, knowing that He is a powerful King. And yes, let's depend on Him. Let's pray to Him. Let's cry out to Him, ask Him to show His power over the enemies in our life. But also allow Him to lead you, trusting and submitting to Him, the one who is sovereign and in sovereign love defeated our greatest enemy of all. I'll pray a prayer, and I hope you can join me as I pray this. Father, help me to be faithful, to love you, to love others, as you've commanded me to do, because you're worthy of our lives. 
Help me not to worship my kids, my family, my marriage, my job, my studies, my results, my reputational status. Uh, I'm sorry for the times I've treated you like a good luck charm, only accessing you when I need something or want my way. Reducing you to be some divine force for my own gain. God, you are sovereign and you are the king. You deserve center stage in our lives. Help us to joyfully submit to you in obedience, aware that we can't control or manipulate you, but instead surrender our lives willingly because you are worthy of our worship. It's in the precious name of Jesus we pray. Amen.